This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. As we touched on last week, this is part two of Business Styles. Uh, last week, we touched on vending, buy listing, setting up as a GP versus LGS style type of thing. And this week, as we said, we're going to go for backpacking and what that looks like, including different types of backpacking, what kind of logistics those entail, and the bygone era of the GP buy list backpacker, rip floor trading. We'll never see you again. So let's get started. Uh, so we kind of look at this as uh, an era of backpacking or eras of backpacking because things did change over time as technology changed over time and you look at the way gps uh ptqs gpts used to be these larger events that took place outside of the lgs that was an era where people who understood prices at a large scale buy list and retail were able to take advantage of a scenario where others were not as well informed or just the bygone days of being more apt to trade the cards you're not using for the cards you need at an almost one-to-one rate despite price disparity for the most part and so because you need the card and if everyone's happy that's it yep so we can kind of start out like not way back in the stone age of backpacking but we'll say the buy lister and those are the, the backpackers that you would see up to a point in time, what is it, about a year to 18 months ago when Channel basically said, hey, if we find anybody floor trading, floor buying, you're out, you're done, and yeah. we'll see you again never. But these were people who would come in, they basically had buy list numbers with them, and they operated as a shop on the store. Uh, sorry, on the floor, and you would see them in what would be affectionately termed the pit. Yeah. And that could basically be anywhere the tournament wasn't happening on the floor. It could be over by the concession stand where there was just free tables, at a corner of the GP that wasn't being used for the tournament or side events, and it would just be a, uh, a couple people at tables with binders open, just chilling and chit-chatting. And they were just there to fish for people to come in and work with them at a you know, a buyless kind of level, and they had their specific numbers that they were paying. They operated, generally speaking, as their own entity, and, you know, that's what it was. And you can decide whether you wanted to work with a backpacker or a vendor, and everybody was kind of, like, okay about it because vendors weren't paying that much for their tables yet. So there wasn't as much ire as there grew to be once tables started costing, you know, three, five, six thousand dollars $6,000 each. And these individuals generally at every grand prix you know locally you would know you would walk into a a gpt or ptq and you would know those people who are backpacking it it could become a first name you know relationship kind of thing that's literally how ogre got his start was backpacking Uh, and he's that that legend i guess you could say infamous yeah Yeah, whatever um you can look at it uh I don't know the position he has, but if you're lucky enough to work with him, uh, the funky Cole Medina, 
over yeah. at Puka Trade, uh, John Medina yeah. would backpack when he felt like it, and he would just show up at events and backpack, and people knew who yeah. he was, and it was, it was a, a great experience to work with John. He knew his the numbers in his binder, your binder, the vendor's cases, the people who were playing the tournament, everybody's numbers. John was great. Oh, yeah. And, and then you had, like, you know, all the way up through, like I said a couple of years ago, there were people you would know because they would be there, and you might not know their name, but you would know them as, you know, like Top Hat, a gentleman whose name I still don't know. But uh, Top Hat. I, I know someone who loaned him money, doesn't know his name, knows him as Top Hat. Top Hat. Because he was the gentleman wearing a Top Hat. And yeah. uh, eventually, you know, this kind of backpacking fell off where you would just work at, at Biolist uh, at numbers. And this is kind of, it was the most prevalent thing to do for a while. And then you just had to kind of get creative because everybody eventually got the same technology. Every. Yeah. The large vendors started putting their BIOS online. That meant they were printable, so everybody could work with different BIOS numbers or the same BIOS numbers, and then all that changed was the stock. The advent of the smartphone meant people were then able to standardize on price a lot easier. That was one of the ad, uh, advantages of working with a backpacker like this, was they were working off their numbers, either personal or local, so the numbers they were often uh, offering on either the buy or the quote-unquote sell could be better than some of the other vendors on the floor or sorry, on the yeah. floor on site. So there's definitely advantages to, to working uh, with these people. As that changed and we moved uh, through eras and through time, the idea of kind of the consignment backpacker came up a little bit where this is people representing others from another local area or stores that were that were just able to travel and basically do business as a proxy yeah. for others. They, they would have a list of what they needed to, to pick up, sell, trade, etc., and you know do the business. And that still happens, and this, but this is kind of like the, the bridge scenario where you no longer have somebody working off of their own buy list to represent themselves or their own particular store, and you now have this individual who is able to travel to these events because, you know, this is their destination. They have family there, what have you. And so the the community rallied around them and shoved them a bunch of cards or money to pick stuff up at the GP because they don't have access to it locally. And we've talked about shifting stock before, and that's essentially what this is. And that was actually one of the interesting things about this era was that you had a lot of people that were the floor traders, the binder grinders from the previous era that suddenly became basically like 1099s for other people uh you know some people just got a reputation and weren't necessarily welcome on gp floors anymore so they had people work for them instead mm -hmm. uh and that was when you started to see the consignment and it was basically same people top hat was one of them uh i was one of them there's plenty of buyers now at booths that started as backpackers and plenty of owners yep. of booths that Sorry. started as backpackers uh, and you would see them say, you know, well, if, you know, this gets in my book at this amount. And a lot of them would be up front and they'd say, look, I'm trading for this person. I started with this much. I need to leave with this much this weekend. Mm -hmm. And that's when you would see the trade up to trade down type of stuff where yeah. I've got the trop you need and you have 20 misty rainforests. And yep. there you go. Yep. Uh, or the idea of uh, trading for bulk also popular in that uh, area as well, oh, yeah. because while you have that uh, that trop, that trop is worth a, a different number across every booth. However, a bulk rare is always worth X amount. And you can find an article that was written about this uh, a number of years ago, probably a decade ago, 
where it actually makes more sense to cash out in bulk rares because at the time they were worth 10 cents a piece. So yeah. you knew if you were trading for that trop at retail value in bulk rares at 10 cents a piece, you were making money. You were making money. Yeah. And, and, uh, and on both sides of this, uh, both parts of this era, yeah. it was a very powerful tool to have if you were looking to become liquid essentially, uh, or you just wanted to launder's the wrong word here, but essentially just move stock or, or launder some things across. Yeah. Uh, also part of this consignment thing is, uh, and this, this happens a little less frequently is that one pack mule player who's just given the list of cards three people need for their modern decks. And now they're the ones in charge of buying it from vendors or trading for it on the floor. But those people are, they're not purely backpackers. They're usually there playing, but they are yeah. doing the job for several people. And you will eventually find them sitting down with a number of other traders. You know, they, they have, they're buying their other people's buying yeah. whatever. Yeah. Right. So that this idea of the consignment backpacker is kind of the, the, the bridge to, effectively just representing yourself yeah and and coming in and just getting the the job done for yourself this is for the most part where i've operated i've operated off a, a bylist before but it was uh my own bylist I, I wanted to operate within percentages so i had yeah. a printed up bylist i was essentially using and my numbers were pretty square up and that was easy and then doing this myself for myself basically using the like the trade up trade down style method where i just wanted to essentially become a little more liquid after the day than i was going in has become a fruitful model for me doing this over the last couple of years it's been a little harder because that pit that i mentioned before has shrunk yep. it's a lot harder to find people who are just sitting there with their binders a lot of this action has become uh not dangerous, but unsavory on the floor. So it'll yeah. be handled outside the event, uh, outside of the purview of uh, TOs, etc. And it's not to say that anything shady is going on, but it's just a lot easier to operate in a space where the tournament isn't because yep. tournaments are so big and there's so much going on now. Trying to find this pit and set up this pit and just create an area where you and these other people can sit for hours on end is a lot more difficult than it used to be. Especially with the command zone now, and that, that takes up like entire swaths of the room. Yes, they basically have kind of attritioned just f traders who are there to do nothing but self serve. From and kind of as a public room. service announcement to anyone, uh, it's not that you doing this outside of the hall isn't going to get you in trouble. No, not at all. The judges know what's happening. The TO staff knows it's happening. That's fine. Mm -hmm. None of them care. The only reason it matters is because they can't see it. It's it's one of those, you know, as long as I don't see it and don't hear about it, it's okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're sitting down and trading with someone and someone is like, hey, do you want to grab lunch? That's not them saying they're going to grab lunch. That's let's go outside to do this deal because I can, one, hand you cash. Yes. Or two, we can actually trade. Mm -hmm. And granted, in my experience working all the GPs after they cracked down on this, it took two GPs before the like binder grinders went extinct mm -hmm. and started working out of hotel rooms, basically yes. almost, you know, Hey, I'm going to post up on Facebook. Here's where I am. I'm going to post on the forums. 
here's where I am. This is what I've got. Let's make a deal. Oh, yeah. that That's a model I'm not intimately familiar with, but I, I do know. and goes back to that kind of proxy idea where sometimes there will be a company that comes in uh, yep. internationally because they're, they weren't able to get booths. Sometimes it surrounds or bookends large events like Gen Con or Eternal yep. Weekend, and you'll they'll travel essentially with the GP. Yeah. And they'll post up at uh, what's like the hotel of choice, whatever, you know, the, the GP suggests you, yeah. you stay at. That's where they are. And they'll have uh, a room where you set up your deals ahead of time and you go in and you just kind of chill in the room, do your thing. Sometimes if, if it's available, they'll also have kind of representation on site for people who actually want to, you know, trade naturally. And at that point, yeah. you're, you're interacting with a store still. Um, the idea of the individual backpacker, has kind of gone by the wayside and you're not going to see those people looking to as you mentioned binder grind the entire weekend and then cash out more what you'll see now happen at the gps are people walk in with the suitcase and before those people walking in with the suitcase were going to set up for the set up in the pit and they were going to just you know dump their binders out and trade all weekend long now they're there really to sell they've done all their work ahead of time or they're going to, they've taken orders and they're going to be filling those orders and then they'll be dealing, quote unquote dealing, throughout the weekend somewhere else, either within the room or outside the room with the people they've set up uh, shop with or shop for. Something interesting that I've also seen happen it was GP New Jersey the same year that the unrelease was happening. I think it was Amon, maybe Amon had sealed. Uh, yeah a number of backpackers that I had known over time at that GP were actually able to get their own booths. So mm-hmm. they had, uh, there were two or three large booths split into three. So first bifurcated in the middle and the larger half was given to the larger vendor. Then the back half was again, bifurcated creating two quarter size booths and event and some of the, like most notorious backpackers I've seen across North America had their own tables there because they were able and they were able to just literally put their binders down finally with prices. You know, they Mm -hmm. bust in, they flew in, what have you. And, and there it was in this kind of evolution of the backpacker to store owner, like you, like we talked about, or the backpacker representing themselves finally and able to kind of afford a table as a local vendor and just move product that way instead of having to sell out like they would normally, you know, out of the suitcase. And that's kind of where we're at now with the backpackers is you have people that are either, you know, pseudo representing themselves uh, when they're out there on the floor, or you have people that, you know, like me, for example, when I go to work for another company, I have my local buy list because I'm kind of, you know, helping out the local guys, which is something that most backpackers have understood is, you know, originally, way back in the day, it was your relationship with your LGS. Mm -hmm. Then it became your relationship with your LGS and the GP vendors. And that's kind of where we're at now. And it's, you know, you go to the GP, I'm sitting behind a booth. I know my buy numbers, I know the booth's buy numbers. If my buy number is higher than the booth's buy number, the booth buys it at their number, and I buy it from them at my number. Yes. And it creates this really interesting dichotomy because it's kind of the opposite of what it was when you were a floor trader trading into a gp buy list you would buy for your number and sell it to the booth rather than the other way around and i think that that's one of the most important 
pattern of ability to like help out the local community. And even if you're a backpacker, having the good relationship with an LGS where you can come in and you can say, look, I'm going to be in here. I'm going to be trading. I yeah. may have some singles that you don't. I'll give you a percentage, whatever needs to happen. Can I use your space? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. And that's something that especially locally I've seen a lot of lately is, well, not so much anymore since in-store events are suspended, yep. but you'd started to see those relationships start to develop where you would have a backpacker go around at different events, but you would know like, ah, you know, he has this in his binder now, but I don't have enough for it. Hey, is that going to be in this store's case in a few days? Yeah, great. Then I'll go there and get it. Yep. It, it's a really good spot to be in. And despite what I may think about the solubility of magic and the long-term health of the game, that I think is one of the most healthy things happening financially is that backpacker relationship. I, I agree as well, because when you look at it from the LGS level, and I do want to talk about, you know, backpacking at the LGS particular in a moment, not a lot of stores are able to send out representation to events in order to move their own stock. You know, stock that just sits there is stock that's not churning. It's not, it's stock that's not earning. And so if you're able to, to do that by taking it to a GP and either trading it out to an actual vendor there or mm -hmm. uh, selling it and just bringing back <coughs> cash, that's going to do more for you than these cards that are just sitting in one place. Stores at that point would have to send an employee out on their weekend, possibly pay them, etc., or work with somebody they know they're go that is going to that event, somebody that they trust, and just say, hey, you know, dump this for us. And yeah. sure... You can mail whatever you need to as a store to Card Kingdom or Star City or Troll, etc. But there's a very good chance that you're going to get more for, let's say, high-end modern singles on the floor of a G of a modern GP, sorry, modern Magic yep. Fest, than you would to a buy list that same weekend. So if you send it all, if you send it all with a player, you know, give them a little bit of juice for what they for what they're doing. You're going to see Help a better them out. R yeah. You're going to see a better ROI on that overall. Your player base is going to be happy because that means you can either buy more cards, or you're going to be bringing in more stock because that player is going to be able to work with your best interests in mind and bring back what the store has asked. And it allows just churn through that ecosystem, which is awesome. Yeah. And I think that's really big and, and really important because not everybody just you know, a lot of people forget that not every store has the same reach for product. It's for singles. Um, and then continuing to talk about uh, the LGS level, you know, backpacking at an LGS. I'm in an area right now where there's, uh, I think, last count, four stores that could possibly hold paper magic events on a Friday night. And only one of them is its own dedicated vendor. The only one selling, only one is selling singles. The other ones do not want to... Uh, one of the other ones brings in an external vendor to handle their singles. If I wanted a backpack at the other two stores, I can and have. And yep. it works out super well because I'm able to move cards between the two or provide a service that doesn't exist there. And as such, you know, I'm looked upon a little more favorably by the players because, hey, I'm, I'm able to fill a need. Yeah, uh, I have better reach than they might for certain things, and at the end of the day, they know to come to me for certain things. Um, 
I've had people recently just trying to move stuff around for EDH based on the sets that have come out. You know, I've got a player that has an Italian uh, Eureka that wants to move it some for some more RL stuff. You know, absolutely. Can, yeah. you know, can I serve that player? No, because I don't have the cards they're looking for, but I can absolutely help route them. But they came to me because they knew I have, based on what we've done before, that I can help, you know, serve them in that area. And this is that kind of relationship that you get with somebody who is there to serve the community as as a backpacker and help that flow of cards when it doesn't exist at the local level. And that's kind of I'm in the same space as well myself, where I work with a couple LGSs, but if I don't have it, people will still come to me because they know typically, you know, EDH foils, whatever else, I'll be great on. Yep. But if it's something I don't have, I at least know people who do. So it's kind of like being a fixer. And mm -hmm. it's been interesting in the ecosystem here, and I don't know if it's the case where you are, where, you know, there's probably about seven or eight of us that occupy in the greater St. Louis area. Mm -hmm. And we've each kind of carved out a different niche for, like, what we specialize in in terms of singles. And it's been really interesting to see because as we've done this, it's just naturally evolved that we do different things from each other. And it's been very pleasant because we've just separately carved out different niches and we all refer people to each other. So that's that's been very nice as well because then you have not just trading for the LGS, but you're also not competing with the other backpackers because you have the understanding that like, hey, we're we're in competition. But similar to what we touched on on our last episode with vendors at a GP. Yep. We're friendly about it. We're all trying to do the same thing. If we're all doing well, great. I'd mm -hmm. rather five of us do well than one of us. Oh yeah, no, a absolutely. And uh, it's 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 different here only because there aren't that many people with the that kind of reach anymore. And those of us that are able to travel to events to to help arbitrage and you know move things around have just uh, dwindled over time. Uh, between interest and, and finances so the thankfully there's finally a store that sells singles so you know they, they take care of that and then the external vendor that comes in is uh, great at serving the area they um they moved from magic into dragon ball super pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh because those are the games that that store currently serves um, yeah and you know they all occupy their own spaces i'm the only one that really works outside of that because nobody wants to keep the kind of stuff i want to keep in the area and, and i'm perfectly fine with that and yeah I, I think every area has that one kind of like all right let's let's go over to grandpa and dig around in the attic and see what we find kind of guy and like yeah sure my attic's behind me it's a closet but you know we're still there it's if, fine. yeah if you want to if you want to kick over some stuff a bunch of reserve lists is going to fall out like that's all that's going to happen. Yeah. And the the idea of becoming that backpacker was something that kind of stuck with me when I came back to uh, to Vermont because I'd done it before and I knew I was coming back to an area that was uh, financially depressed and still is financially depressed. And I'm able to help the community as somebody who has the means to move things around, even if all I do is break even because I'm working on those weekends at those events I'm still able to go to those events and move things around either for people on their own because they want to cash out, which I've done a number yeah. of times. I, I've brought 
I don't know, two, three fat packs worth of vilists to events before for people. Oh, yeah. And moved them on my own dime and just, you know, cashed everybody out. I picked up cards for people, and it just allows people to keep playing this game while creating, you know, uh, friendships and inroads. And it, if it was hurting the community, it would have been obvious because the stores around here were serving singles at the time, but it's not like I was in direct competition with the stores. They weren't buy listing, yeah. or if they were, they were our, the players were not happy with the numbers they were getting. And so... They just started searching for other opportunity, and they just didn't feel safe mailing their stuff in. So that was it. I flew it. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, it, the more you do that, uh, there's people that I have cashed out three times, four times now, mm-hmm. because uh, we never stay away for long. Nope. That's nature of the beast. Oh, no, not at all. Unfortunately. Uh, the people that borrow cards. Uh, I know the moment Star City schedules a legacy event, who is going to contact me? And oh, yeah. for what? Yep. Every time. I know. Because that relationship has been forged as the, you know, the backpacker, the player, and eventually just, you know, the lender. Because they yeah. sold to me, and I essentially have their collections now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I think, one of my favorite parts about the backpacking aspect is having the ability to, like, be that reliable source oh yeah for people to be yeah. able to say yeah you know i i got you don't worry it's cool oh, and yeah. just having people come to you and knowing like you can take care of it and you're helping the local community yep. because i i think one of the most important things about both vendor styles uh when you're at a gp you're still like what you're doing is for the health of the competitive community for the large-scale event community yeah and when you're a backpacker, oftentimes what you're doing is, you know, not just for you. Like, obviously, we're all trying to make money. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to break a lot of money or you wouldn't be involved in owning an LGS. You would just, I don't know, invest in high end because that's where the money is. But uh, you're making a little bit of money and you're ultimately helping out the local community. Mm-hmm. And that is this really great symbiotic relationship where everyone is kind of working in tandem with one another. Yes. And... You know, they're communicating their needs to you. You're communicating their needs to them. And it's nice to see the overlap between those two styles every now and then, because I think there is at least my impression behind a lot of booths nowadays Mm -hmm. is a lot of disdain for the backpackers because of how much those booths have started to cost. Yes. Yeah. And especially as channel has racked up to $15,000 booths, which is insane. Oh, yeah. The super booths. Uh, And also... Like, the bigger your booth, the more money you're going to make. And that's what kind of sucks. Because mm-hmm. they can only hold so much booth space. And if a bunch of people get super booths, guess what? That kicks the smaller guys out. Yep. So. No, I, yeah. I, the, at every point you just made kind of buttons up the conversation I wanted to have around this, which is the importance of both aspects of this and what it is like to be a, a backpacker now versus then and some of the stigma that still exists around the backpacker as that original kind of shady dealer that used to work off their own buy list. Yep. You know, a lot, a lot of people were worried that they were just going to get sharked all day long whenever mm-hmm. somebody else pulled out a binder and that's not necessarily the case anymore. Nope. Thankfully. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, advent of this guy has helped a lot yes. because it used to literally be 
you know, I remember going to pre-releases and right before printing out the Star City or Card Kingdom price list. Yep. So I knew it that weekend, and I would spend hours before the event memorizing, memorizing that price list. Yeah. So I knew when I saw that Tarmogoyf that was a dollar for some reason because people are bad at card evaluation. Read LSV set review on Oko. Anyways, uh, I knew that that was a dollar, and I would pay a quarter to 50 cents on that, depending on the trade. Mm -hmm. It's just the reality. Yep. Should have gotten a lot more of those. I, I did the same thing for set releases. I used to. I used to set up a, a list ahead of time just so I had the numbers for like four or five cards in my head because it just makes things easier and people find it a lot easier to work with. I guess if we want to I end this on any kind of tip, if you're going to backpack and you know exactly what you're looking for, having those numbers in your head ahead of time so you can just scan through a binary. So you're like this, 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 yep. this, this. Pull it out. You know, Tell somebody what the numbers are and let them run the numbers yep. if they want. And just keep the transaction running on your own is super helpful. And usually people are, are, are down to deal with somebody who understands what they're doing. And when they quote numbers, are giving you real numbers. Yeah. You know, that, that offers them a sense of security that they might not get otherwise. Real numbers are the key. Yeah. Always offer real yeah. numbers. Yeah. Always. All right. You ready for picks? Let's do it. All right. Did I go last week or did you first? I know we both went I last week. I think I did. All right, cool. I'll go first this week because I'm picking a new card. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm going with Tormod the Desecrator. Uh, uncommon c commander with partner from Commander Legends. Three and a black, four, eight, four, two. Uh, with partner, as I mentioned. Whenever one or more cards leave your graveyard, create a tapped 2-2 two, two black zombie creature token. So Tormod is the card I am highest on across the set. Uh, I might have mentioned it in the pod. If not, I've been singing his praises for the last at least two weeks in uh, in Discord. This card, I don't think it's going to blow the doors off of EDH, but I have a really good feeling that it's just going to start slipping into everything because yeah. every color has a way to remove a card from the graveyard. It doesn't have to be exile. It just has to change the zone. So... Looking at this card, it interacts with a number of strategies, but more importantly, it interacts with the following keywords. Delve, Dredge, Embalm, Flashback, Haunt, Jumpstart, Persist, Recover, Scavenge, Soul Shift, Undying, Unearth. Those are just the, the keywords you'll find on cards that this works with. So immediately, this card tells screams to me that it, it wants to be partnered, no pun intended, uh, with Malira, Silvok, Outcast and become yep. part of what used to be the birthing pod combo. So Malira, and I'll bring this up in a moment if I can figure out how to spell it. R-A? No, I'm wrong. And dumb. All right, Malira basically says that your creatures can't have minus one, minus one counters placed on them. So if you have a creature with persist, like uh, Kitchen Finks or Murderous Redcap, and a way to sacrifice them, they go to the graveyard, they come back, they can't get the minus one, minus one counter, and thus you can sacrifice either of those two cards an infinite number of times. Each time they're going to trigger Tormod, Tormod is going to make a 2-2 black zombie. Well, if you have a sacrifice outlet, that means you can trigger uh, Blood Artist, Zulaport Cutthroat, Cartel Aristocrat, yeah. any number of these drain effects uh, an infinite number of times. And it becomes another cog, not even in the wheel, in the machine that is this combo. I think overall, this card is going to li live in the Sultai 
uh, shard or wet wedge wedge, and it might be something like Moldrotha that actually attracts Tormod. Yeah. Uh, into the style of play because Moldrotha just allows you to play a permanent <clears throat> of each type from your graveyard every turn, so that's just innate value. In Grixis, you have Kess, which just lets you play a card from the graveyard uh, every turn. That's just innate value. In both of those, you get Psychotog. Psychotog allows you to eat two cards from your graveyard to pump it. That triggers Tormod. Red has uh, not only Perforos, Goblin Bombardment, and Pandemonium, but Paston Flames to just let you recast your entire graveyard and trigger Tormod. The only color that's a little weak overall is white. White doesn't interact with the graveyard that much besides either exiling it all with Rest in Peace or yeah. getting individual things back with, like, Resurrection, which is the original, like, reanimate spell, right? Yeah. But what white offers you is the other wedge that I think might see play in Abzan. And in Abzan... Yeah. Not only do you get Malira in green, but you get two additional Malira effects in Anafenza Kintree Spirit that uh, says whenever a, a non-token creature enters the battlefield under you control, you put a plus one, plus one counter on a creature you control, so it negates the minus one, minus one counter from Persist. And you also get Solemnity, which says you can't get counters and creatures you control can't get counters. That allows you to combo off with both Unearth and Persist. You also get access to Juniper Order Ranger, the old all-star from Ravnica Standard that worked with Crypt Champion to cancel out the minus one, minus one counters. I don't know if you remember that deck. Uh, same concept, though, and that's one of the reasons I think this is a good pick, because like you said, it goes into multiple shards. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, Continue. it's fine. I appreciate it, because like, the more you dig in on this card and what already exists, you see that it just becomes this back-end, like, cornerstone. It's another way to combo out. It's an, another piece of this machine. And yeah. it goes in everything. I'm sure you could go off infinitely in mono black if you wanted to make this your partner. Between Volrath Stronghold uh, and uh, Haunted Highway, you can just keep cycling creatures to the top of your deck. I'm sure there's a way to draw a card every time and just keep replaying something silly. You know, Fruity yeah. Pebble style with Enduring Renewal, you just play a zero-cost creature, sack it, put it back, loop that infinitely, and Grave Pack the table while getting somebody with the, the triggers from Blood Artist and what have you. This is just going to open up a number of additional strategies. Corval, that works with Corval, I think. Like, it's just fits in so many existing strategies and allows people to kind of hone in and coalesce what they're doing on something a little bit better yeah now uh originally i thought i was gonna look to to say all right move in on set non-foils because they're so cheap they're under like 20 cents right now and i still i think that's a good buy i i do if you want to buy in quantity and you want to pick up like 40 or 60 or 20 cents a piece man go ahead you know that's eight twelve dollars yeah. if you can if you can spare it go for it they're going to take much longer to recover right now this is a flashpoint for etched uh between this week and maybe two weeks from now so we're recording this on the weekend of november 21st Right, we have from yeah. now until basically the you know, the first weekend in December, where I think etched foils are going to be at their lowest, and they're going to be the the first to recover. And if you want to buy in now on etched, I think that's actually the play. 
Yep. Is to get in there because they're they're ridiculously cheap. They're like, uh, is it under three dollars a piece right now for the etched? Bring up TCG player. Uh, I think so. I was actually just looking at this earlier today, trying to find yep. stuff in Commander Legends that was two dollars and twenty seven cents right now. Uh, is the low. And if you filter for four or more, there's a store with 62 for $2.74. I would pick up however many you feel comfortable picking up for the etched. I think this is one of the cards that is just going to go from, uh, you know, hot medium in terms of price to red hot. Yep. And I don't think this card gets worse over time. I think this card just gets better. Just like every other piece of this combo, the Aristocrats combo, if you want to call it that. It just gets better over time. They just keep adding more to it and more things to do with it. And the fact that this goes with every color pairing possible means this is going to be or could be as important as both Blood Artist and Zulaport Cutthroat to this combo. And I think that, you know... You touch on something that I think we've talked about a lot there in the podcast, and that's that cards like this only get better the longer the game is around because mm. they just continually print ways for it to be abused yes. and ways for it to be synergized. Similarly to when I picked uh, uh, Coco, mm -hmm. you know, and when we pick cards like Snapcaster Mage, they're just going to get more and more efficient with these kinds of things, yep. and as they do cards like Tormod just increase in playability and power level. Exactly. And that's, you know, as close a thing as you can get to his reserve list without being on the reserve list yep. is the type of thing that, you know, this is a value engine. Mm -hmm. Value cards are good at every level of play. Competitive, casual, kitchen table, 75% EDH, whatever you want to call it. Cards like this are good. Yes, and that... I think that's why it's a good pick. Thank you. Um, I think the timelines are, they're not pretty clear cut, but I think six months if you get in below 25 cents for the set non-foils when you're going to actually start seeing movement because you know this insane quantity that's just been released has to disappear. I think three months is about the time where we begin seeing uh, the etch to actually really start to take off. Essentially, we just need to hit the new year and just kind of be done with this glut of commander product that we just got. You know, over the last yeah. couple months, we got everything. We need... I, again, the, everything to just cool off. The people for people to really settle in, rebuild, redefine what they want to do, and then the commander market will just kind of go back to normal. And once that happens, that's where we'll see the the true action on this card. And I think it's worth you know anytime we talk about a card that's not on the reserve list, something like this, I don't really think has a lot of reprint risk in the immediate future. Uh, it took TNN, which pretty quickly became valuable, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, timeline-wise, the absolute longest you'd be looking at is still years, which is fine if you buy in a large volume. Or if you're like me, you just have a 5K filled with, uh, no, I think I'm at like 700 copies of Sarkin's Unsealing. I don't want to talk about it. No. Uh, yeah, I, I've... Uh... Because it has the partner keyword, I really don't see it coming back except yeah. in the yearly reprint. So I yeah. think that's actually the, the kind of key to this over a lot of other things is really the, the partner keyword. Like, Tormod's a story character. We have a handful of other cards that reference Tormod by name, a few that reference yeah. Tormod by flavor text. This is Tormod. I'm sure people are going to clamor to make the Tormod deck based on the fluff. Yep. 
And I think it's the partner keyword that really lends power to this in the long run. Because they yeah. don't just go throwing partners into the yearly. Nope. It's something they're never doing again. For whatever Until reason. they do partner with a specific card. Yep. And then they're never doing it again. Until they need to sell sets. But, so far, I don't so think they've good. reprinted any cards with partner. Have they? Uh, no, yeah, there are a few reprints in the set that have partner. Okay, partner. fair. Uh, uh, but the still, black they wait years yes. before they do it. So. No, ab uh, absolutely. It took us so long to know that we were not going to get partner back that uh, movement started to happen on a number of cards with partner, and then they reprinted cards with partner. Yeah. They were, they're in the etched. Uh, I'll find this one. I'll tell you this one, and then we can move on. But it, it's the black-white legend. Timber. Uh, yep. That's the one. Tana also did. Did Thrasios? I feel like Thrasios did. Maybe not. Yes, Thrasios is in here as well. Both of them are. Okay. Yep. There, there we right go. Here. Both both uh, the notables that uh, spiked this year. Yeah. All right, my choice, and this is something that we do periodically. For those of you that have stuck with us over time, you know that the Cabal deals a lot on Card Sphere. Uh, great platform. Check them out. I like it a lot. Anyways, so the thing that we've noticed with this card is that the velocity on this is insane, and the price is not moving. And typically, when that happens, you're going to see a price correction because cards don't move really quickly and then dry up without the price going up. And that card is Karn, Great Creator. Uh, he of Restricted and Vintage, because there were infinite copies in the top eight at Eternal Weekend. The card is insane with Mycosynth Lattice. It's insane with Power. Who knew? Uh, and it's really only seeing play. Uh, driving Force is modern right now and then vintage and way down the list you've got legacy and the reason i am picking the pack version of this card and not the alt art japanese printing is specifically because of the sets that are driving it it's not like vintage where you're going to get the max you know pimp factor you can you want the shiniest rarest coolest looking thing you have modern players generally if it's foil whatever and i think that timeline wise you're probably looking at a little bit shorter timeline. Now, I'd say maybe three to six months with a caveat, and this is something that I never thought we'd really have to touch on. Uh, depending on how tax season goes, which, as we know, typically you see a good spike at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Things may be a little bit different this year because of how the market has evolved during COVID and the fact that this isn't necessarily as much of an EDH all-star as some of the other Karns are. So conservatively, you're looking at about, I'd say maybe three to six month timeline and mm -hmm. it may be a little bit quicker. So right now we are sitting at, and I looked this up earlier today and I am an idiot because I did not bookmark it. So, Karn, Great Creator, War of the Spark, Pack. Low is currently sitting at $4.44 plus $0.78 cents shipping. Very quickly, it looks like within one page, we get up to $6 on this card. 
And if we have less than 20 results and that's shipping included, of course, before we get to $6, it's going to go up pretty quickly from there. The nice thing is that also these first couple pages are all one-ofs with page two, us finally hitting a four of copy at 590. So this is educational moment. When you see the number of listings with one, with everything, we've got 313. When you look for four or more, 50. And within the first page, we get to $7 per copy. So in terms of quantity, there's really not that much standing between this card and a close to a $10 price point. Mm -hmm. And I think that once you start to see the first page start to dwindle, that's when the band snaps and all of a sudden we get back up there. I also think this is a fine long-term hold because this card is probably too powerful to be reprinted outside of like a battle bond style set, Mm -hmm. some type of supplemental because hopefully I'm going to regret saying this. Hopefully wizards learned the lesson of planeswalkers with passive abilities. Oh wait, they didn't because they printed more. More. Anyways, I don't think this one is getting reprinted anytime soon because it's so. banned, restricted in multiple formats. It is destructive and toxic. Uh, uh, yeah, basically, <laughs> it's like, real bad. Yeah. Uh, but I think that you know, honestly, getting in on retail in this is probably fine because I'd expect buy list numbers to hit retail within three to six months based on what we're seeing supply wise and everything yeah and if you can get in at three to four dollars in trade windmill slam if you can get in at six dollars a trade i'd windmill I think slam that's fine that too. Yeah. at that point six in trade is basically four bucks cash and that's buy list yep. so you're fine with that but i i think it's a good solid card and if you're on the card sphere platform and you're listening try to hoover up as many as you can because there's no way that with this, you're going to see a price correction not happen. Mm-hmm. No, uh, a- absolutely. Yeah, it, this card's on the rise. It's weird when you look at stocks how it just takes a stepwise trend yeah. down from you know $9 to uh, where it is now, about 7 We're headed, or we should head back up to, you know, its historic all-time high since release at about no nine ten dollars the more we see pioneer play because that is the most recent driver for this card it's continued it's obviously being pushed by modern when you look at just the sheer quantity of results that come in with this card the problem is that modern doesn't really get any love at the uh what do we want to call it no 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 like the professional oh uh, level right yeah, at high-level competition, it's not modern anymore. So. Yeah, uh, Watsy's still focusing on Pioneer, and that's fine. So you just have to look at your most recent drivers and what they are. Long-term modern players are going to buy this card because they need it for their long-term modern goals. Short-term Pioneer is going to pump this card back up to what it used to be. Everything else will float it in, into forever. Yep. And I I, <clears throat> I agree, it's, it's a great long-term pick. This is... Not unlike uh, Teferi 3, where the passive ability just gets better the longer the game exists. Yeah. It's very similar to uh, creature-based combos, where the longer the game goes, the more efficient certain things get. 
and the better certain things become because they don't look back to see okay if we start making super efficient artifacts again that aren't overpowering for standard and pioneer what happens elsewhere don't really care that much karn does yep you know teferi cares about you know the game being played at instant speed and the more the game moves if it does towards an instant speed game teferi 3 just gets better over time because that passives you know just aged well has the ability to really age well and it's important to look for that kind of stuff like even if you just want to sit on them as a long-term spec it you know you can go back and you can take a look and you'll see that things like this that just work oddly well as the game moves on have a tendency to just continue and trend upward in price primeval titan null rod um mind slaver yeah these are weird things that just got better over time because the game just progressed and it happens you know and it's something you got to keep your eye on and it 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 always begs the question of how often do i need to review something weird you know yeah if something uh catches my eye as being a little too good but it's not seeing play well figure out why if that's something you want to to trend on you know sunbird's invocation is mine i believe that card is worth has the ability to be worth way more than what it is as long as they don't keep fucking reprinting it on me yeah i feel like that about sarkin's unsealing which is here we are eat my hat on that one real bad (laughs) both of those cards just get better over time because the game just keeps getting played and things keep getting more efficient up the curve and games go longer or ramp gets better so you get to these positions faster and that's just the game progressing naturally it just makes these cards that look like they can do incredibly powerful things at on a longer timeline much better because they now can interact on a much shorter timeline tooth and nail another great example it was okay when it was in standard you know it was a t4 kind of thing it did nothing and then when everybody started moved over to EDH, and they're like, all right, this card wins the game when you cast it. We just need to speed this shit up. And yeah. we just put as much ramp and card draw as you can to get to Tooth and Nail so you can just get kiki-jiki blight seal and like, kill you. You, know, you. you move on that, and then Tooth and Nail becomes a ridiculously expensive card because of that. Because it did a Which... weird thing that was way too powerful. And because the game progressed naturally. It got better. better. Yep. Similar to your pick, Coco, everything we've mentioned before. It's as close to RL as you can get. Yep. Uh, it's interesting that those cards are worth more, and the mechanics that reward you for playing the game are the best mechanics, like Dredge, Storm, Delve, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, not, like mechanics like, not mechanics like Mana Barbs, Mana Web, uh, Burning Sands, you know, the ones that actually encourage you to play the game, but on the terms of the Mono Red player. Though... <laughs> Those don't Winter Orb well. is the most fun card in Magic, all right? Because uh, Magic is fun, and Winter Orb lets you play more Magic. It's so. true. It's just like Stasis. You can play the maximum amount of Stasis. Sorry, Magic if you play. Love Stasis. Gush Stasis. Stasis was the business in middle school. Yeah. Those two cards let you play a lot of Magic. A lot of Magic. Make a lot of friends, too. Oh, yeah. There is a finite amount of fun that can be had in a game of Magic, and I intend to have it have all. all, yeah. <laughs> That should just be the flavor text on Winter Orb. 
Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I and if if you really want to be like a snooty bitch, you get the uh, FBB German one because it's all one word, Frostbringer. Oh, that's awesome! I didn't know that. Metal. Yeah, that's it's great. Good. But I think it's gonna do that. Do it for this week, guys. We will catch you next week uh, for MTG Gabalcast, where and we can be found on Twitter, YouTube, Patreon, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts. I am at Halt. I am Reptar on Twitter. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you guys next week. Yep. Thanks for tuning in and happy Thanksgiving, everyone.